gotta be joking. You've gotta be joking. Now when the treasurer wishes oh, to go no. there or not, I would forbid him going. Forbid him going to the Senate. To uh, uh, account for this unrepresentative swell over there. Hey Rob, how you going? <laughs> I'm not so bad. How you going? Yeah, I'm alright. Um, I'm getting used to the whole uh, social distancing, you know, rules. Yeah, what do you, what have you been up to with that actually? Man, I've, I've been at home. Yeah, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been doing a bit of a home gym setup. Oh, it's yeah. been pretty good. Been zooming with my mates. Zooming a fair bit. A yeah, zooming yeah. just a little bit. Um, and doing a lot of uni work because I found out I have a lot of spare time recently. Yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do, really? Yeah, and record a podcast occasionally. <laughs> Every now and then. Very occasionally. What are yeah. you been up to, man? Well, a lot of the same. I think it might be a little bit of a public service we're doing here, talking about ways to entertain yourself through the uh, through the virus. Uh, so, yeah, a little home gym, obviously. Nice. Because, you know, gains don't rest. <laughs> <laughs> they really no. don't. Um, that, you know, a bit of reading here and there, obviously uni work, um, playing a lot of video games as well. As you do. You know, <laughs> I watched an Instagram live concert on the weekend. Yeah. Was that, um, that one, I think Triple J was like, yeah, it. it's called Isol- Isolate. Isolate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Um, so seemed pretty cool. Yeah. It's not like middle kids and stuff. Um, but that's, I guess that's, that's the new way it's going to be. Yeah, it's going to be a weird few months, you'd say. Yeah. Or could be more than that, or who knows, could be less, but it won't be less. <laughs> it is kind of weird, though, because we were, like, Zooming with a lot of our mates last night, and I kind of, like, wouldn't normally just speak to a lot of my friends on a weekday if I didn't have to, like, see them in a uni class or something. Yeah, yeah, this is so true. it's actually kind of nice. Well, I think because everyone's so fucking bored, really, <laughs> that, like, you know, what else are you going to do? That's true. Really? Bored and a little sad as well. Bored and sad. It's a dangerous door. <laughs> the worst two emotions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know what makes me a little happier, Rob? What? What's that? <laughs> Talking about a little bit of politics. Yeah, exactly. Great great segue there, mate. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah, I'm getting used to it. Um, our first topic this week is Australia's fiscal and monetary response to the coronavirus. Yes. Unprecedented work we've seen by both the federal government and the Reserve Bank of Australia. Yep. To try the and RBA. Exactly. <laughs> to try and mitigate the worst effects of the virus. Yes. And Rob, what's the big news been well, over the past week since we recorded? Well, over the past week, uh, well, last night, I think it was, or the night before, there was a huge stimulus package announced by Scummo. Sc- sorry, Scummo. <laughs> Scotty from Market. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, including um, wage, what's the word I'm looking for? Wage subsidies. The wage subsidies, yeah. which is really important for uh, people in our age bracket. Uh, and I'd imagine most people listening, uh, especially because almost the entire young workforce is now casual because yeah. deregulated markets, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if I'm biased this episode, guys. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then earlier in the week, um, it'd be the quantitative easing done by the RBA. That was actually a question asked by one of our avid listeners. Oh, yes. Thank you uh, very much. Thanks uh, to Matt O'Keefe. Great guy. <laughs> very nice guy. Yeah, I must say. Yeah. Um, handed us a, a article on quantitative easing, which is kind of what, what's called unconventional monetary policy. 
So central banks, the conventional monetary policy is to adjust interest rates to have an effect on the economy. I think we've talked about that before, but very briefly, lower interest rate, you're trying to cool down the economy. Oh, sorry, you're trying to stimulate the economy, um, encourage banks to loan and people to spend, essentially, rather than uh, invest their money. Um, and uh, unconventional monetary policy comes into an effect in these big crises. Yep. And quantitative easing is one of those things where essentially the bank injects more money into the banking system um, in, in more liquid, as people say, in the hope that the banks will lend that money out now at incredibly low interest to businesses and individuals. Yeah, and I mean, the conventional monetary policy can't really be undertaken right now by the Australian, well, the RBA, sorry, uh, because uh, there's a little saying in economics called the zero lower bounds, which says that you can't have interest rates below zero. And I think Australia has it at 1% now. 0.25%. Yeah, almost zero. So, yeah, we're pretty much on zero, um, which means it's it, you pretty much can't cut interest rates anymore. Really, no, yeah. Unless I think, you do a Japan. <laughs> I think the RBA have said they will not lower it below 0.25%. Yeah. Um, so they're going to engage um, in quantitative easing. I think even more um, unconventional forms of monetary policy that are only known really to nerds of monetary policy. Yeah. But I think the point is the whole government is going all out. So we've seen $220 billion so far from the federal government in stimulus, which is fucking crazy. Yeah, I mean, Australia's GDP, as we discussed yesterday. <laughs> $1.3 trillion, I think. $1.3 trillion, so that's about, what, $200 million is nearly... Well, $200 200 billion, yeah. <laughs> nearly 10, 20% of the uh, GDP. That's crazy, man. Uh, yeah, which is huge. Yeah, and then the a little bit of money from the state governments as well, and then $80 billion from the RBA um, in the form of you know QE, quantitative QE, easing, yeah. and other kind of instruments they're using as well. So really, all of this is unprecedented. Never seen a stimulus this big coordinated by both the RBA and the federal government. It's going to be really interesting because I think me and Nick were in agreement even a few episodes ago. I think we might have gone on a record saying that it'll be very hard for Australia to avoid a recession in these times. But surely with a stimulus package this big, it'd be it I'd, it'd be hard to do it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And unless that money is spent really poorly, which is an argument we can have now or later. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, it's in regards to that money, but if you're spending twenty million to uh, two hundred million billion, two hundred billion in the right <laughs> numbers, areas, it's hard to think about. Yeah, in the right areas, it will stimulate the economy enough. You'd imagine. Yeah, well, I think it'll. I, I will say, you know, hopefully, but this is an unprecedented economic shock when you it have is, to definitely. shut down, you know, whole sectors of your economy that rely on kind of a social interaction and you know, impede other sectors, that is going to have a, a monumental impact on the economy. And mm. I think we're already seeing early warning signs of that in some indicators. Um, and I think the big question as well is who knows how long this is going to go for? Um, will it go for like a few weeks or are we facing a shutdown for you know, some form for like six months? That's a major concern. And that's the one that Trump has been going on about for the last uh, week or two in saying that it'd be better to just open it up and risk the health system 
than to keep the economy shut down. And it's that way up of the economics versus health. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I think I like mentioned that last week we talked about it, and I think the the definitely the discussion, the public discussion, has shifted a little bit this week. I was just listening to uh, on the radio as I was driving over to Rob's recording studio in his bedroom, as I do, and I heard they were talking about on the radio this issue of do we go for like a a herd immunity approach that Boris Johnson in the UK almost considered doing, where mm-hmm. You you know, full herd immunity, you just don't do anything. But I think that's very unrealistic. Basically, you um, lower your restrictions a little bit and sacrifice really people's lives and the health of people um, in the short term to protect the economic and then health interests in the long term. Yep. Um, or do you do what a lot of countries have done in practice, which is like four like really harsh shutdown measures to try and contain the spread of the virus in the hope that we will contain it soon and then everything can go back to normal. Yeah, and it's going to be very interesting to see how these things go back to normal. That wage subsidy that uh, ScoMo announced will be a key um, way of seeing if that everything does go back to normal because it allows employers to keep people on. And that's something that me and Nick have talked about previously in saying that if you unemployment is a really bad indicator yeah. for an economy um, because... Once people lose their jobs, they're very unlikely to get it back. You know. Yeah, it takes a long time, a lot of investment to get it back. Yeah. But I think exactly. it, it's it's really painful to see that. I like I know like Maya has already suspended employees. Like Qantas, all the airlines as well. Yeah. I think you're seeing the early signs of that kind of mass unemployment happening, and You've it's, it's very it. yeah. scary. And um, to touch a bit back on that monetary policy, that QE is not going to help unemployed people really no yeah i would even go out as far to say i don't think it'll do a whole lot is yeah i don't i don't think money going directly to banks is really going to help an an economy right now because banks are well irrational is probably the right word to use here but banks act in their own interests and act in profits interests rather than in the country's interest which is fair enough they're a privately owned thing um and therefore, giving them that money, they're going to think this, the economy is currently shit house, really. So why should we lend? Like businesses don't don't want a loan, right? They want money. They they want customers. It's like a unique demand side issue. Yeah. So the a loan's not really necessarily going to help them, and they might weigh up like the the cost of that loan. Yeah, exactly, and that's why these um, monetary policy. Traditional, traditional monetary policy ideas that we've seen before might not be able to work, and I think this crisis relies a lot more on fiscal policy, and that's in direct money from the government, um, like the stimulus package announced uh, last night or the night before. I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah, um, and this is such a, a unconventional and unique crisis that has been posed to the global economy and the Australian economy as well. And like trying to compare, you know, the measures taken during the GFC and other areas, I think is to to some extent not really that useful. Yeah. Because um, you know it's a, such a unique thing, um, and it's like, a, like again such a demand side like businesses need customers issue, and like the obvious answer is to get the customers back, but we can't really do that at the moment. So we have mm-hmm. to find different ways to sustain those businesses, and I think it's incredibly difficult to actually do that. Yeah, it's it's a really tough one to uh, get your head around, really, because 
you know, we've talked many times about how an economy relies on just money exchanging hands. And without socialising or with social distancing, it's very difficult for money to actually, you know, stay moving in the economy. It usually just sits there and does nothing, um, which is going to be terrible for the economy, really. Yeah, and I, I think as well that it, the nature of the whole thing is that it's so uncertain. So, like, how long are we going to have to shut down for? Because if we knew we had to shut down for, like, a month, if we say Australia was so behind the curve that everyone else shut down for a month and it was fine then that would be, I guess, not as bad because the government knew they would only have to support, say, businesses for a month and then everything would be fine and we would lift all the restrictions. Um, but it's not like that. We're seeing, like, the countries most similar to us are still in the midst of this crisis, so we can't really copy exactly their time frame. Yeah, you can't really ask coronavirus, you know, when you're going away, really. No, right? And I think it depends as well on, like, the effectiveness of your public health measures. So, who knows? And, you know, there's the same old thing. If you reopen, will you just see the same thing start to happen again? Yeah. So, it's a, it's a whole unique and terrible crisis. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's so unprecedented for our times, for any time, really. I don't think the modern world has seen such a, like, massive health crisis that we've that we've had you know yeah like this I, a lot of people draw comparisons with this and the spanish flu but i think it's just things are so different now and trying to draw out any kind of like valuable lessons is just a kind of i think a little bit of a meaningless exercise especially when it comes to the spanish flu yeah definitely. so i think like you know we're all kind of living it in the current moment and no one really knows what's going to happen next week well, and, and you probably put the government at the top of the people that don't know. And that's not a, you know, as much as I have been critical of the <laughs> government, that's not a, applied on them. It just seems to be uh, so quickly changing and so difficult to predict particularly. Um, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I kind of feel sorry for the guy having to be prime minister through this. It's got to be so um, stressful. Yeah. Um, which we'll touch on a bit later. In the topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, well, I'm definitely bringing that kind of um, uh, wariness to any expert opinion or official piece of advice or really anything that anyone says about this. Um, to like, I'm bringing that that edge of like wariness um, because they don't really know any more per se than I do. Yeah. Well, they obviously know a bit more than you. No offense. I don't know. I know quite a lot of stuff. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's so difficult to predict, even for the really smart people that know a lot about this. Cause I mean, look at, look at world governments, they're still struggling with it, uh, particularly in Europe right now. And they're supposed to be some of the most, uh, you know, highly educated, uh, governments in the world, etc. Yeah. Well, and there's people who know a lot about the public health side of things and people who know a lot about the economics. And I think it's, you know, such a, I don't know, multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach to solving or understanding this whole thing that it requires a lot of different people's opinions and a lot of information, some of which we don't have currently. I think it does a lot of the times it is just like we don't know and some people don't like saying we don't know. So they want to have an explanation, sometimes an explanation that doesn't exist yet. So Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it that that balancing act of that the economy versus the health is I think the toughest issue here, because I think if it was just a health crisis, we could really just say, no one's leaving the house for X amount of days, and we'll ride through this. But the the issue is uh, in this time we you, obviously the economy is almighty 
in uh, in modern times. Nothing comes before the economy, you know, the old uh, hip pocket nerve, as they call it in <laughs> elections. Uh, yes. Um, so you've got to balance that at all times. And I think that's what governments are really struggling with. Yeah, I think... I think like my kind of prediction is that the talking points will kind of converge on, I think between that idea of just letting the virus run wild and doing nothing and saving the economy, between that and going into full lockdown, there is some equilibrium point, which is like the best response where, you know, you were saying, no, we're not just going to let all the old people die, but we're also not going to let our economy go to shit so much that all the young people and people who are about to retire are just going to be fucked. Yep. I think there's an equilibrium point there, and I think maybe we'll find it eventually, but not without some trial and error, that's for sure. Yeah, that's the thing. It's that equilibrium is something we've never had to test before. Exactly. So it's going to take a while to find that equilibrium, as you put it. God damn, I can't wait till we get there, though. <laughs> That'd be <laughs> Me nice. Me too. just want to leave my house. <laughs> well, Rob, another thing this whole virus issue has thrown up um, over the past few days is the issue between China and the US in yeah. terms of global leadership. Well, this is this is an issue that we've seen really since uh, the 2010s when uh, China overtook Japan as the world's second largest economy. Yeah. And a lot of people started to point then that, that now there'll be another challenger to the US's hegemony, which means like the US's uh, world leadership. Yeah, just do a fancy politics. political science term. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because we're wankers like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and a lot of people thought that, you know, now this will be a time for, uh, you could call it a second Cold War or something along those lines where the US will be challenged mm. for its hegemony anyways. Yeah, and we've seen that in a number of different areas. So, like, the South China Sea is, like, a military hotspot where China keeps building artificial islands um, outside their territory in islands that are claimed by the nations and the u.s has had a involvement in that more recently we saw the hong kong protests where a lot of western countries spoke out against um you know the treatment of the hong kong protesters and just the idea of democracy in china in general and china had its own opposition to that so we're really seeing the u.s and china clash heads a bit more over the past few years and the, the trade war is probably the biggest example we could see in the last few years of a direct um sort of hostilities between the two nations because before then it was a lot of uh you know posturing with each other you know i think china's done a lot in um recent years anyways in investing in smaller economies such as like those in the caribbean or in africa yeah africa as well yeah africa is a big one um just to you know gain allies in international forums uh because the u.s being the world hegemony for so long has gained a lot of traction and allies and that that's often touched on as a point that could lead to china falling uh, as a hegemony because it purely just doesn't have enough uh, allies around it really yeah and i think it's such a good distinction important distinction between this idea of like hard power and soft power which is like a thing in international relations a hard power being like you know military power like you know gdp um, you know, like a, a way of directly comparing the US and say China or another challenger. But this idea of soft power is as if not more important, especially in our current global context. Yeah. Um, you know, like the kind of ideological um, power over many different countries, you know, the influence of your ideas as opposed to the other country's ideas. 
Yeah. So the US is more cultural based. Yeah. Yeah. Like champion, like democracy and, you know, capitalism, market fundamentalism. And China kind of, you could make an argument saying China doesn't have as good as a response to that. I think that argument is well and truly valid, personally. Um, The US's soft power is really significant compared to China's. The US has all these cultural icons. And, you know, you can see in Australia, we watch US television, US sports. We follow US politics. Yeah. A lot of people follow US politics closer than Australian politics. Yeah, I mean, yeah, US Hollywood, the music industry in the US. And we we point to these things and a lot of people don't understand how they actually contribute to US world power. So powerful. But it's so important that you are seen as the world leader in culture, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, like a monopoly on ideas. Exactly. And that's the key point. And that's probably one thing that is against China is they don't have that um cultural lead that the u.s does and they've been working on that in recent years with you know tiktok being slightly owned by the chinese government yeah and there's some such other things like that yeah yeah it's so hard to manufacture that though in the same way you can build more guns it's so hard to yeah advance your idea or or your ideas especially when you're coming from an authoritarian single party state definitely kind of hard to build legitimacy if you could imagine (laughs) uh but In recent days, we've seen a new talking point come up, um, that being the China now has significantly slowed its rate of infection for COVID. I think Um, they might have had a day recently where they didn't have any new infections. Yeah, something like that. Which, Um, for the place that it all started, allegedly, sorry CCP for saying that right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For a place that it all started, it's amazing that they've been able to do that so quickly, especially when you see what's happening in Europe and the US, particularly what will happen in the US in the coming weeks. Exactly. And I think we talked about those harsh measures the CCP, the Chinese government took um, against, like you know, bolting people's doors so they can't leave their house and such. And clearly that has worked to some degree. It was criticized a lot at the time as, you know, being, as violating human rights and being too extreme. But Right now, the China, oh, sorry, the U.S. is about to surpass China in COVID deaths, which is insane. The U.S. is like under a quarter of the population of China. This isn't like a you know, per capita thing. This is just an absolute number of deaths. The U.S. is about to go higher. Yeah, and you know, it's pretty significant. Assuming China doesn't have a relapse, and by the way, they're in the process of lifting restrictions soon. Assuming they don't relapse the US will be decimated in terms of public health and you know, if you want to extrapolate the economy as well, way more than China. Yes, definitely. And that you know, that comes back to a pretty important argument that's been made a lot in recent years, uh, particularly with uh, amongst uh, younger people with um, disengagement in democracy. It's probably the best way to put it. And a lot of people see that China can take control of these issues much better and a lot of people actually think that that's because you know authoritarian states can do these measures better and therefore they are uh, a superior system let's say yeah definitely that's probably quite an extreme view but that's definitely been rising in recent years you'd say yeah i think some people you know regardless of it's i think a good point that you brought up about democracy i think there are measures that show people's trust or faith in democracy has dropped but even regardless of that, if you just look at the legitimacy and the kind of recognition or reputation of the US compared to China, 
I mean, the US under Trump has taken some serious blows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you could point to so many things, but just as one example, like them withdrawing troops from Iraq, just widely considered to be a huge foreign policy blunder, just embarrassed the US and Donald Trump. And now his response to COVID, Trump's response has been ter- quite terrible for coming <laughs> yeah. from a lot of different people. He was so it was very slow to react. The US is slow to re- to test and added that to uh, that added to the fact that Trump just says dumb shit whenever he speaks at press conferences and makes himself <laughs> sound like an idiot. Yeah, and the concern is especially with the US is the, the elephant in the room here is the healthcare system. Um, and that's been widely criticised, particularly amongst Democrats in the US, as being way too uh, prone to failures if something like this happened. Yeah. And you can see that it is really, really hurting the US right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the big urban centres like Seattle and Washington, I think, is particularly bad, and they're close to, if not already, hitting their capacity of the health system. I think New York's the one that's really struggling right now, actually. The yeah. The state of New York, that is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I heard something today about, you know, the governor issuing all free healthcare personnel, personnel to come to New York because they need all the help they can get. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for the US to be not even at like even close to the maximum impact of this virus for them to be already about the same number of deaths as China is a very you know, bad omen for the US. Yeah. And you, I can't imagine it getting better anytime soon for the US. No. And like, they're going to come out, we're going to come out of this whole thing and China is going to be vindicated, assuming that they don't have a relapse and then they lift restrictions and everything's a little bit more fine. They're going to be so vindicated. Their authoritarian measures were the best way to deal with the virus. You know, for a country that has so many people, 3,000 deaths is amazing compared to an estimate I saw um, in the US paper today saying it could be as many as 100,000 in the US or more. Which, yeah, would be horrible, really. And it, it really take a chunk out of the US's hegemony, really. Yeah. The China can po- always point to that and say, our system work the you know the china dream and the beijing model as it's called which is basically the model that china runs in its soft power uh circles that is um is really strong yeah definitely um and the us is gonna see like a very hard situation to inherit um in terms of the economic damage and their economic system will be pitted against China, the Chinese economic system and the US will have a change of leadership um, or, uh, yeah, uh, an election, maybe a change of leadership <laughs> at the end of this year. Yeah, maybe. Um, and they're going to have to, the world's going to have to adapt to that. So I think it's maybe, you know, the worst time for the this to have happened to the US. Yeah. And it, it seems that this podcast is becoming very economic space, but the economic impact of this we'll probably see China overtake the US sooner than thought. Predictions have said 2030, assuming growth stays the same, and a lot of people have said that that growth will fall off on China's half. Um, however, you, you almost say that China is going to pass the US within mm. the next 10 years. Interesting. I, I won't make that prediction, Rob, oh, yeah? but I uh, no, no. Well... <laughs> I think that China also faces a lot of problems. China does face a lot of problems, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I I will say I think a lot of this discussion rests on the assumption that China will be fine coming out of this 
um i you know like who knows what will happen once they lift their restrictions will everything be fine or will they just have a spike in well, yeah, infection? Well, it was just you know two three weeks ago that we were saying that this could be the end for the ccp exactly <laughs> so you know we clearly we've got no real uh, knowledge <laughs> yeah and i mean i don't want to underscore as well the problems that covid has placed on china's political system and social order as well yep. um a lot of these things will be realized in the next few months and you know, even longer but i think it's important talking about like you know the possible things that could happen um and i've heard people talk about this u.s china relationship as well so i think you know, regardless I think we can say that China's like measures of clamping down very hard on restrictions have worked better than so far what the US has done anyway. Well, I think you, that's undeniable, really. Yeah. Worked better on the health front, at least. Yeah. So, you uh, to some extent, the US has definitely lost some legitimacy in this space. Yeah. And that's a blow to their soft power and their whole, you know, their whole stake, their whole um, uh, kind of proposition of being the global leader. What happens when your global leader is clearly just not just like not good, you know, defunct, not good at what they're doing. Mm. You look, you know, you look for a new global leader as a kind of middle country. So who knows what could happen in that space? One of the yeah. many consequences of this terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, definitely not us is the answer to who knows. Um, <laughs> but please keep listening. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, we're just gabbing. We're just talking. That's the great thing about this podcast. Yeah. Don't take anything we say yeah. as, you know, a very re- well-researched, solid <laughs> point. Because um, we are just talking. Yeah. We but, are just talking. But we do reflect some points in the media. So you never know. <laughs> and also, if one of these things turns out to happen, I will call. I will say I called it. Oh, well, you know. Yeah, I will. Def- but oh, the okay. things that don't happen, I'm just not going to talk about Yeah, you don't, you don't mention those. No, no way. <laughs> then, why would I? <laughs> right, well, when this podcast is going in 2030, I'll uh, come oh, back yeah. to this second, third, what, fourth podcast? <laughs> what, why would I know? <laughs> uh, yeah, in the recording studio that we've built. No yeah. worries. <laughs> Man, we got any more? Anything more to say about the old US and China? No, I don't think so. I think that yeah. that's a pretty comprehensive, well, comprehensive as you can get in fifteen minutes. Um, this will be a point that we, we would almost guarantee talk about it another time. Yeah, because it's such an interesting point, both in terms of politics and uh, strategic studies. I just think watch this space. You know, like China. Um, you know, the things they say and the things they do will be very important over the next few months and next few years as well. Yeah, and these, these things probably won't fully play out until five years down the track where we understand what, you know, the true result of coronavirus really was. Yeah, and there's like a lot of, um, like there's a lot of people in international relations as well who think that China and, and the US are on a collision course anyway. So, you know, their collision is inevitable and anything like this will just accelerate that collision. Yep. Um, so who knows? Um, but we will definitely talk about that at a lead date. Yeah, definitely. Now, Rob, we're going to talk about a bit of a bit of a favourite for you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, our last topic is the 2019 election in Australia. We thought we'd do a bit of a uh, uh, reflection on that election that turned out to be quite important because 2020 is... And uh, the late latter half of 2019 proved to be a very important time for Australia with the bushfire crisis and now the coronavirus crisis. A lot of crises is going on. <laughs> Many crises, yeah. Um, yeah, crises. <laughs> yeah, learn, learn the plural. That's how Sorry, bad man. it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we got to, like, discuss, really, how that election 
uh, occurred. It was called the unlosable election for Labour Party. Yeah. How that occurred and what do you think the long-term impacts of that would be? Really? Yeah. Well, I said to Rob before we started recording, do you think Australians would have picked a different option if they had known what was going to happen you know, late last year and now this year? Yeah, it's an interesting point. And we're um, not even a year into their government as well. They have three more, like three years total. So yeah. who knows what else could happen? It turned out to be a, you know, a monumental election um, and uh, I, we will live to see the consequences. But Rob, what's your take on, you know, short take, because, you know, we don't have all the time in the world. It's a very complicated issue. But what's your unbiased take on why Labour lost the election? Um, so unbiasedly as I can be, I think Labor put forward policies at the 2019 election um, and that allowed the Liberal Party to almost act like an opposition despite being in government and attack those policies. And usually it's a lot easier to uh, attack and uh, attack policies, that is, and to criticise rather than build up your own platform. Um, and that allowed, you could see with the campaigning, it was very much let's stick with the current mob, the economy is strong, which it isn't, by the way. Um, <laughs> Clearly not. And, you know, that we are, you know, right. We don't need to go all crazy with these electric cars and, uh, you know, real climate change policy. <laughs> no, <laughs> no yeah. sorry. Uh, and all these other things. Um, and that's a very easy way to campaign, whereas I think Bill Shorten's campaign was maybe a bit too idealistic. Yeah, too ambitious. And, yeah, too ambitious is probably a word to use that. Yeah, I mean, I will say that me and Rob, like, I, we, we do, we are trying to be unbiased, um, even though we might make jokes. <laughs> um, you know, this is, like, you know, our just view of how things happen. But also I don't think we'll, we'll shy away from saying what we think is true. And I kind yeah. of agree with like, pretty much all of that. Um, I think the coalition had about, like, two or three policies and for so long they didn't have any policies uh, besides, uh, oh, we'll just do the same thing kind of approach. And Labor had, you know, so much on the plate, um, reforming heaps of the economy, um, addressing some of those long-term concerns about, you know, people not seeing a rise in wages um, that we've talked about before. Um, and clearly the that big or the, the big target the Labor Party set themselves up for was 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 really bad and i mean no one predicted as well the polls yeah we looked at the polls yesterday and not one poll predicted the lmp to win that day yeah and the, every i mean remember sports bet paid out everyone who said labor <laughs> was going to win the election and then a few hours later they lost yeah bad day to be sports bet that one yeah and like yeah. it's you you often look to the gambling um uh, companies when you're trying to make predictions about politics because they're yeah they have a financial incentive to get the best prediction but even yeah. they got it wrong which is is crazy yeah it is crazy to think about and um you could you, there's a yeah, there's a lot of reasons in this election you think um you know you can talk about that policies and how uh, Queensland in particular, which was probably the deciding state because every other state, I think, swung minutely towards Labor and or at least stayed even, and then Queensland swung quite violently towards the Liberal Party. Um, and you can bring that back to you know, the, Queensland being a traditionally conservative state and some of the policies you know, affecting mining in Queensland, which is really important to their economy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, with the whole, you know, actually having a climate change policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is my problem with like trying to analyze the election and I've heard so many people try and do this. But, like, there's just, like, seemingly so many approaches you can take and all of them just kind of, like, suggest that that's the most important, but clearly, clearly there can only be one most important. Like, the the Queensland thing, which is uh, very true, makes sense if you think. It was you know, a huge swing in Queensland. But there's also the completely different argument, which is it was a leadership issue where people just didn't like Shorten yep. and ScoMo was this, like, kind of, like, nicer guy who was, like, better at marketing. Yeah, well, ScoMo did well that election in portraying himself as your regular Aussie bloke, as I think he would like to put it. And Shorten seemed a little bit like a sort of a nerd, I guess. And I think a lot of people, if you look at uh, politics in Australia, it's a lot of people just vote on who would you like to have a beer with most. Yeah, I think think that's a, a huge part of that. We can't discount that. And Shorten, for so long, didn't poll well in terms of like, his actual leadership. Yeah. You know, the Labor Party polled higher than him consistently. And he was, like, struggling to be preferred prime minister for so many of those polls. Um, and Labor, you know, made a huge gamble by sticking with him after the 2016 election and yeah. clearly didn't pay off, unfortunately, unfortunately for Labor. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's that leadership argument that people have talked about. There's also the media argument, which is uh, kind of related, but a bit different where you say that you know the the big news conglomerates um uh, kind of aligned to support the coalition more than they supported labor and people like um clive palmer as well running these huge advertising campaigns um you know in queensland especially um that didn't win him any seats but also but just um downplayed labor's position a lot of um negative campaigning which is like kind of mean campaigning where you just uh, uh, downplay the opposition or critique the opposition as yep. opposed to promoting your own policies. Um, some uh, uh, some scare campaigns from the coalition. We saw the one about death taxes, which was just a very blatant scare campaign. I'm just going to be honest here. <laughs> it was just completely untrue, not founded on any real policy that Labor was forming, That um, the, but the coalition claimed that Labor was going to have a death tax system, yeah. which... I think it's so you know it's so hard to measure the impact of any of these things, but clearly maybe they're all important and one was more important than the other. I think they're all contributing factors there, and I think another thing I'd like to touch on quickly is that topic of media. In your point, I think there's no coincidence that the state that has purely Rupert Murdoch-owned newspapers in Queensland uh, was the state that swung most to the LNP, and. You can see, I think, um, I don't know the exact source here, but I think the Rupert Murdoch papers wrote 70% more stories about the Labor Party than the Liberal Party. And let's even, we'll give Rupert some credit here. We'll say he was completely unbiased and just gave equal uh, footing to either party. Even if he has done 70% to 30% there, that's 70% more or 40% more where he's critiquing policies and talking about policies on the labor side than on the liberal side yeah that's um i mean we can talk about the role of the media and kind of like that you know unaccountable role especially with big news conglomerates later but it definitely has a huge impact and i think maybe where this all leads to for our discussion here is that when you paint yourself as a bigger target by having a super ambitious policy policy platform 
you're so much easier to take down. You know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Exactly. And if you do a small target approach, if you're the opposition or in this case, the the, the government, government yeah. that can pay huge dividends. And it's quite, it kind of runs against our logic because we might think that, you know, we want ambitious policy platforms. We want people who look like they're ready to govern with a whole agenda. But clearly it runs against the psyche of some people and makes it so much easier to critique the other side well yeah it, it's obvious that it's easier to criticize than it is to promote in politics and you can see that with pretty much all election campaigns in australia for the last 10 years really yeah and like maybe people's attention spans are, are shorter now just because like the way we advertise has changed it's now a lot on the internet um and you know that's uh, the cycle of the media is so quick now that stories can come lightning fast and then just disappear and no real there's no real accountability there you can't really talk and about the point and a lot of the issues you know are very nuanced and complicated like our response to climate policy for instance where i think if you look at a, a lot of people they're saying like it's really unfortunate that these mines in queensland have to shut but that's just no longer going to be sustainable you're looking at an economy over the next 10 years which will, will transition to sustainable stuff no matter what australia does right so it is actually the best economic decision and also environmental decision to move away from coal, in my opinion. But yeah. people don't want to do that. And it's much easier to say, oh, you know, you're just a greenie. Um, you know, we want economic growth. That took me like two seconds to say. The other, you know, the explanation is way, way longer. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, can see, you can see that in Queensland, especially. It's just the, no, I'm not losing my job as a coal miner. You know, because you greenies in Melbourne and in inner cities want to, you know, sip your lattes and talk about how great the environment is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's just... I think that it goes straight back to that. Sorry to interrupt that. Oh, it goes fine. straight back to that hip pocket issue of people who are more worried about their income, which is more than fair enough. People are more worried about themselves and their income than they are about the environment. Because you can't, you can't see how the environment affects you, really. Yeah. You can talk about the bushfires, but you can't really quantify that. And a lot of these things are so long-term and very complicated. And if you were, if you had to sit there and plan out your country's response to all this stuff for the next 20 years, you would naturally come to the conclusion that, oh, well, hey, we should probably do something about climate change. But it's so much easier and simple to quickly tell people that they don't have to worry and they can keep their job, and then you'll vote for that side. Exactly. Is that a Pe- serious... People vote in their own interests. People vote on the hip pocket, really. Exactly. And, and they'll vote for the simpler, they'll vote for the, the policy that sounds better for them, even though it, it might not be true or the best response for yeah. the whole whole society. And is, is that a serious failure of our system? Uh, well, I think it, it depends on how you look at democracy, really. It, it, do you want democracy to represent the people or do you want it to be effective, really? Uh, there's a little quote that if you get selfish and ignorant, ignorant people in a country, you'll get a selfish and ignorant leader yeah. in a country. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> and if you get, well, you know, we were talking about China before. I, Not to say that China actually selects the smartest people, but they have the benefit, you know, that, that small leadership. They have the benefit of not having to worry about appeasing the the whole crowd of people in China. So they can actually, if they want to, take a policy which is you know negative in the short term but positive in the long term and is overall the best policy to take yep definitely 
Uh, may- Rob, maybe democracy isn't all that's cracked up to be. <laughs> yeah, may- maybe we should just all hail to the CCP. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, that was a joke, by the way. Me and Rob do like democracy, but yeah. <laughs> clearly there's some issues here. I think it speaks more about the media and advertising than it does about the actual idea of democracy, which is a good idea. Yeah, well, it, it's very difficult for uh, free media to even exist, really, because corporate interest always finds its way in. Corporate interest, that's the same in politics, really. Yeah. Corporate interest is the most number one, you know. It can always find it's the uh, tentacles. You know, always the tentacles go a long way. I know. And it's like such a, it's a self-sustaining thing as well. Because as soon as you say, oh, look, we have a problem, um, that part will start to defend itself. You know, the news conglomerates and the, the parties that stand to benefit off this issue will say, oh, no, we don't need to do that. Where, you know, in reality, you probably should try and regulate, you know, adverti- political advertising a lot more, but you just can't. Like, you know, there's currently no way to stop a party from just straight up lying um, when they're advertising, which is, uh, in my opinion, what the coalition did in that election. <laughs> so, and, you know, isn't that crazy, right? Yeah, it seems wrong. Like a blatant that, lie. That that can happen. Yeah. Um, but... You know, we it it is what it is in Western worlds. That's democracy, unfortunately, and it seems to be very difficult to remove that side from democracy. Even if you know you publicly fund election campaigns and do all these these ideas that could get parts of it out, you st- I still struggle to see a situation where corporate interest doesn't play at least some role in all politics yeah you know exactly i you know i think the interests of wealthy and powerful people always creep in and that is kind of a downside but you know there are also there are downsides of many political systems yeah. i think it was winston churchill who said democracy is a terrible form of government but it's not as terrible as all the other forms of government that we've tried yeah exactly like yeah <laughs> yeah so you know that's a that's a very overused quote but still stands it true. still stands yeah exactly that yeah well maybe we'll leave it at that rob yeah a bit of a, like bit of a depressing idea, one but yeah you know, we do like democracy it's just got yeah. its problems exactly as churchill said <laughs> <laughs> well we're not gonna pledge ourselves to the ccp yet yeah not yet not yet well not- until until their, their world hegemony takes over the entire world then we'll have to delete these quickly <laughs> all right yeah z if you're listening uh yeah well we might be coming soon maybe <laughs> all right Alrighty, thanks for listening, guys. See you next week, everyone. Stay safe.